0: You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024, by Feedspot.com.
1: After World War II, it was clear the world needed a new financial system. The gold standard was considered too rigid, but at the same time, economists were worried that countries would devalue their currency to boost exports. For this reason, 44 countries sent delegates to a conference held in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, as of the 1st of July 1944. The U.S., which held two-thirds of the world's gold reserves after the war, was obviously the most influential player and ultimately, all currencies ended up linked to the dollar and the dollar was linked to gold. One important concern arose, though. If a country goes through an economic crisis, how can it get out of it without devaluing its currency? To address this issue, two institutions were created. One, the International Monetary Fund, which was supposed to lend money to countries that are in trouble and cannot attract financing from other sources. 2. The International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is now called the World Bank and was supposed to help less developed countries grow. Unfortunately, as good as it may have sounded on paper, the Bretton Woods system didn't survive because the United States kept running deficits to fund various projects, and therefore the amount of dollars in existence kept increasing while the gold reserves of the U.S. kept shrinking. As more countries demanded gold in exchange for their dollars. As such, on the 15th of August 1971, Nixon officially announced that dollars would no longer be convertible to gold, thereby putting the final nail in the coffin of the Bretton Woods system. <laughs>
2: Hi, I'm Bill Reinsch. I've been working in international trade for over 35 years, which makes me really old. And I'm a trade guy. Today, you're getting a little history lesson. We're gonna talk about the Bretton Woods system. So the year is 1944. The end of World War II was in sight. The Allies, realizing that they were going to win, wanted to get together and talk about creating a world where war and depression could never happen again. They met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. There they spent a month negotiating. There were 730 people or delegates from 44 different countries, all our allies. And essentially what they did was create a three-legged stool, a tripod, of institutions to guide the post-war world. This is how that three-legged stool works today. The first leg is the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. The IMF works with countries that are having problems with money, problems with debt, and paying back the money that they've borrowed. And the IMF gives them advice on how to change their internal policies and structures in order to fix the problems that they've got. The second leg is the World Bank. Back in 1944, when the delegates met at Bretton Woods, they realized that poverty is a big motivating force when it comes to conflict and violence and they decided that if they could help countries grow and create jobs, there would be a better chance at peace. So the World Bank is primarily a lending institution with a goal of ending extreme poverty, and it lends money to poor countries for economic development. The third leg of the stool, as it stands today, is the World Trade Organization, or WTO. The WTO promotes global trade and free trade, and it also functions as a courtroom for member countries to resolve trade disputes with one another. Basically, the WTO upholds the rules of international trade. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for more Trade Guys videos.
3: So let's just review where we are in terms of the hierarchy. The hierarchy is that there's gold at the top plus SDRs, okay? Which is a sort of paper gold that's a fixed quantity that's been added to the system. Okay. Underneath that, in Bretton Woods, okay, is the dollar, which is pegged to gold, at $35 an ounce. Okay? And underneath that is all the other currencies. Deutsche Mark, British pound, French franc. So which are which are pegging to the dollar. This is the Bretton Woods agreement, okay? That the, the dollar is convertible into gold and the other currencies are convertible into, into the dollar. Okay. So where the extra reserves came to allow growth in the post-war period for a while was not in creation of more gold or SDRs or evaluation, but in creation of more dollars. Okay. Now what what uh, Mundell emphasizes is trade deficits. Okay, that the way that basically the U.S. is paying dollars abroad. Okay, and that's true to some extent, but that's not where they all came from. In fact, a lot of them came from the U.S. doing this sort of transaction. So here's the U.S. Here's the rest of the world. Okay, you can you can increase the quantity of dollar reserves in the economy. in in the world, okay, without having a trade deficit at all, okay? This is the point that Kindleberger used to make. Kindleberger, who was Mundell's professor at MIT, okay, Charles Kindleberger, suppose the U.S. uh, lends to the rest of the world, okay? They're trying to build, you know, Europe is trying to reconstruct itself, and the U.S. finances that, okay? So by buying plus foreign bonds here. At the same time, the rest of the world is trying to accumulate monetary reserves because they're trying to grow. What am I showing here? I'm showing here the US as a bank, the United States as a bank, the the entire country as a bank, okay? That it has short-term liabilities to the rest of the world that the rest of the world is using as their their money, as international money, and it has long-term assets, okay? Um, that are loans to the rest of the world. Um, I'm showing this as if these are the same number so that there's no net flows. There's no capital flows, there's no trade flows. There were some capital flows and trade flows, absolutely. But the point I'm trying to emphasize here is that the U.S. was able and did in fact increase the quantity of international reserves so long as people were willing to accept the dollar as an international reserve. The U.S. had some gold here, okay? As a reserve, so the U, the United States is acting as a bank, and it has it, it is holding the international reserves for the entire world. Okay, as long as the entire world is willing to have, accept dollars and not demand gold, this works fine. Okay, and you can expand you can expand the reserves. It's a sort of bank or plan. Okay, a sort of bankor plan, but on the U.S. balance sheet, not on some international balance sheet. And you're making money on this because these dollars are not paying very much interest, uh, if, if any. If it's currency, there's no interest. And these are. So there's, there's an interest differential here that the U.S. Is, is earning. This worked for a while. This worked for a while. It worked to mitigate the discipline that, w- that the IMF was creating. The IMF, the IMF was there to say, we're not going to expand international reserves at the top of the hierarchy, okay? but the U.S. as a bank was there to say, we are going to expand international reserves the next step down. Okay. So there was expansion of reserves the next step down, but there was not expansion here, and so what happened? Okay, you start to get stress, like, there's not enough reserves here to back this dollar, okay? This is expanding, this is not, okay? So the gold and the SDR part starts to get undervalued, okay? And their stresses start to build up in the system. What are the solutions to these? This is Mundell again. We could have revalued gold. We could have created more SDRs, Okay. He tells a story that in 1967 okay, there was an increase in SDRs, but not enough, $10 billion, not enough. He tells a story, which I've seen here for the first time, okay, that Arthur Burns was, was, was delegated to go wandering around Europe talking to central bankers about, would you be OK if we revalued gold? okay? And he felt maybe they would. Um, and he suggested to Nixon that he do it right after he won the election, and he just forgot to do it or didn't pay attention or something. And so uh, it, didn't, it didn't happen. This, so this is in 1968, that election. And by 1971, um, the, uh, the problem of the, there being too many dollars and not enough gold uh, winds up causing the U.S. to go off gold. Um, and that's the end of that system. That's the end of, of Bretton Woods. It would have been fine, Kindleberger emphasized this to the, his whole life, it would have been fine if only foreigners, okay, had, had not insisted on being paid in gold. If they had just accepted, okay, dollars, they're going to be, the National Reserve is going to be dollars. And this gold thing is sort of a fiction. Okay, but they didn't accept that. They thought the gold was the better money, um, and and it got uh, there was a smaller and smaller quantity of that relative to the quantity of dollars, and so uh, the uh, there was a run on the dollar. And instead of paying paying out all the gold, um, Nixon just closed the gold window, and that was the end. The dollar was no longer uh, convertible into was no longer convertible into gold addressed the nation a
4: number of times over the past 2 years on the problems of ending a war because of the progress we have made toward achieving that goal this Sunday evening is an appropriate time for us to turn our attention to the challenges of peace America today has the best opportunity in this century to achieve two of its greatest ideals to bring about a full generation of peace and to create a new prosperity without war. This not only requires bold leadership ready to take bold action, it calls forth the greatness in a great people. Prosperity without war requires action on three fronts. We must create more and better jobs. We must stop the rise in the cost of living. We must protect the dollar from the attacks of international money speculators. We are going to take that action, not timidly, not half heartedly, and not in piecemeal fashion. We are going to move forward to the new prosperity without war, as befits a great people, all together and along a broad front. The time has come for a new economic policy for the United States. Its targets are unemployment, inflation, and international speculation. And this is how we are going to attack those targets. First, on the subject of jobs, we all know why we have an unemployment problem. Two million workers have been released from the armed forces and defense plants because of our success in winding down the war in Vietnam. Putting those people back to work is one of the challenges of peace, and we have begun to make progress. Our unemployment rate today is below the average of the four peacetime years of the 1960s, but we can and we must do better than that. The time has come for American industry, which has produced more jobs at higher real wages than any other industrial system in history to embark on a bold program of new investment, of production for peace. To give that system a powerful new stimulus, I shall ask the Congress, when it reconvenes after its summer recess, to consider as its first priority the enactment of the Job Development Act of 1971. I will propose to provide the strongest short-term incentive in our history to invest in new machinery and equipment that will create new jobs for Americans. A 10% job development credit for one year effective as of today with a 5% credit after August 15, 1972. This tax credit for investment in new equipment will not only generate new jobs. It will raise productivity. It will make our goods more competitive in the years ahead. Second, I will propose to repeal the 7% excise tax on automobiles, effective today. This will mean a reduction in price of about $200 per car. I shall insist that the American auto industry pass this tax reduction on to the nearly 8 million customers who are buying automobiles this year. Lower prices will mean that more people will be able to afford new cars. And every additional 100,000 cars sold means 25,000 new jobs. Third, I propose to speed up the personal income tax exemption scheduled for January 1, 1973 to January 1, 1972 so that taxpayers can deduct an extra $50 for each exemption one year earlier than planned. This increase in consumer spending power will provide a strong boost to the economy in general and to employment in particular. The tax reductions I am recommending, together with this broad upturn of the economy which has taken place in the first half of this year, will move us strongly forward toward a goal this nation has not reached since 1956, 15 years ago. Prosperity with full employment in peacetime. Looking to the future, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to recommend to the Congress in January new tax proposals for stimulating research and development of new industries and new techniques to help provide the 20 million new jobs that America needs for the young people who will be coming into the job market in the next decade. To offset the loss of revenue from these tax cuts, which directly stimulate new jobs, I have ordered today a four and seven tenths billion dollar cut in federal spending. Tax cuts to stimulate employment must be matched by spending cuts to restrain inflation. To check the rise in the cost of government, I have ordered a postponement of pay raises and a five percent cut in government personnel. I have ordered a 10% cut in foreign economic aid. In addition, since the Congress has already delayed action on two of the great initiatives of this administration, I will ask Congress to amend my proposals to postpone the implementation of revenue sharing for three months and welfare reform for one year. In this way, I am reordering our budget priorities so as to concentrate more on achieving our goal of full employment. The second indispensable element of the new prosperity is to stop the rise in the cost of living. One of the cruelest legacies of the artificial prosperity produced by war is inflation. Inflation robs every American, every one of you. The 20 million who are retired and living on fixed incomes, they are particularly hard hit. Homemakers find it harder than ever to balance the family budget. And 80 million American wage earners have been on a treadmill. For example, in the four war years between 1965 and 1969, your wage increases were completely eaten up by price increases. Your paychecks were higher, but you were no better off. We have made progress against the rise in the cost of living. From the high point of 6% a year in 1969, the rise in consumer prices has been cut to 4%, In the first half of 1971. But just as is the case in our fight against unemployment, we can and we must do better than that. The time has come for decisive action, action that will break the vicious circle of spiraling prices and costs. I am today ordering a freeze on all prices and wages throughout the United States for a period of 90 days. In addition, I call upon corporations to extend the wage price freeze to all dividends. I have today appointed a cost of living council within the government. I have directed this council to work with leaders of labor and business to set up the proper mechanism for achieving continued price and wage stability after the 90-day freeze is over. Let me emphasize two characteristics of this action. First it is temporary. To put the strong, vigorous American economy into a permanent straitjacket would lock in unfairness. It would stifle the expansion of our free enterprise system. And second, while the wage price freeze will be backed by government sanctions, if necessary, it will not be accompanied by the establishment of a huge price control bureaucracy. I am relying on the voluntary cooperation of all Americans, each one of you, workers, employers, consumers, to make this freeze work. Working together, we will break the back of inflation, and we will do it without the mandatory wage and price controls that crush economic and personal freedom. The third indispensable element in building the new prosperity is closely related to creating new jobs and halting inflation we must protect the position of the American dollar as a pillar of monetary stability around the world. In the past seven years, there's been an average of one international monetary crisis every year. Now, who gains from these crises? Not the working man, not the investor, not the real producers of wealth. The gainers are the international money speculators. Because they thrive on crises, they help to create. In recent weeks, the speculators have been waging an all-out war on the American dollar. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy, and the American economy is by far the strongest in the world. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. Now, what does this action, which is very technical, what does it mean for you? Let me a re- lay to rest the bugaboo of what is called devaluation. If you want to buy a foreign car or take a trip abroad, market conditions may cause your dollar to buy slightly less. But if you are among the overwhelming majority of Americans who buy American-made products in America, your dollar will be worth just as much tomorrow as it is today. The effect of this action, in other words, will be to stabilize the dollar. Now, This action will not win us any friends among the international money traders but our primary concern is with the American workers and with fair competition around the world. To our friends abroad, including the many responsible members of the international banking community who are dedicated to stability and the flow of trade, I give this assurance. The United States has always been and will continue to be a forward-looking and trustworthy trading partner. In full cooperation with the International Monetary Fund and those who trade with us, We will press for the necessary reforms to set up an urgently needed new international monetary system. Stability and equal treatment is in everybody's best interest. I am determined that the American dollar must never again be a hostage in the hands of international speculators. I'm taking one further step to protect the dollar, to improve our balance of payments, and to increase jobs for Americans. As a temporary measure, I am today imposing an additional tax of 10% on goods imported into the United States. This is a better solution for international trade than direct controls on the amount of imports. This import tax is a temporary action. It isn't directed against any other country. It's an action to make certain that American products will not be at a disadvantage because of unfair exchange rates. When the unfair treatment is ended, the import tax will end as well. As a result of these actions, the product of American labor will be more competitive, and the unfair edge that some of our foreign competition has will be removed. This is a major reason why our trade balance has eroded over the past 15 years. At the end of World War II, the economies of the major industrial nations of Europe and Asia were shattered. To help them get on their feet and to protect their freedom, the United States has provided over the past 25 years $143 billion in foreign aid. That was the right thing for us to do. Today. Largely with our help, they have regained their vitality. They have become our strong competitors, and we welcome their success. But now that other nations are economically strong, the time has come for them to bear their fair share of the burden of defending freedom around the world. The time has come for exchange rates to be set straight, and for the major nations to compete as equals there is no longer any need for the United States to compete with one hand tied behind her back. The range of actions I have taken and proposed tonight on the job front, on the inflation front, on the monetary front, is the most comprehensive new economic policy to be undertaken in this nation in four decades. We are fortunate to live in a nation with an economic system capable of producing for its people the highest standard of living in the world. A system flexible enough to change its ways dramatically when circumstances call for change. And most important, a system resourceful enough to produce prosperity with freedom and opportunity unmatched in the history of nations. The purposes of the government actions I have announced tonight are to lay the basis for renewed confidence, to make it possible for us to compete fairly with the rest of the world, to open the door to new prosperity. But government, with all of its powers, does not hold the key to the success of a people. That key, my fellow Americans, is in your hands. A nation like a person has to have a certain inner drive in order to succeed. In economic affairs, that inner drive is called the competitive spirit. Every action I have taken tonight is designed to nurture and stimulate that competitive spirit, to help us snap out of the self-doubt, the self-disparagement that saps our energy and erodes our confidence in ourselves. Whether this nation stays number one in the world's economy or resigns itself to second, third, or fourth place, Whether we, as a people, have faith in ourselves or lose that faith, whether we hold fast to the strength that makes peace and freedom possible in this world or lose our grip, all that depends on you, on your competitive spirit, your sense of personal destiny, your pride in your country, and in yourself. We can be certain of this. As the threat of war recedes, the challenge of peaceful competition in the world will greatly increase. And we welcome competition because America is at her greatest when she is called on to compete. As there has always been in our history, there will be voices urging us to shrink from that challenge of competition, to build a protective wall around ourselves, to crawl into a shell as the rest of the world moves ahead. Two hundred years ago, a man wrote in his diary these words, Many thinking people believe America has seen its best days. That was written in 1775, just before the American Revolution, the dawn of the most exciting era in the history of man. And today, we hear the echoes of those voices preaching a gospel of gloom and defeat, saying the same thing, we have seen our best days. I say, let Americans reply, our best days lie ahead. As we move into a generation of peace, as we blaze the trail toward the new prosperity I say to every American, let us raise our spirits. Let us raise our sights. Let all of us contribute all we can to this great and good country that has contributed so much to the progress of mankind. Let us invest in our nation's future. And let us revitalize that faith in ourselves that built a great nation in the past and that will shape the world. Of the future. Thank you ah
5: this is Randall
0: your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. (laughs)
4: Join me here. Won't you be seated, please, ladies and gentlemen? Come on, Dr. Jaffe. And Mr. Krog, Mr. Ruck. All, right. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at eight o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I've asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive, dealing with the problems of sources of supply, as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad, wherever they are in the world. It will be government-wide, pulling together the nine different fragmented areas within the government in which this problem is now being handled. And it will be nationwide in terms of a new educational program uh, that we trust will result uh, from the discussions that we have had. With regard to this offensive, uh, it is necessary first to have a new organization. And the new organization will be within the White House, Uh, Dr. Jaffe, who will be one of the briefers here today, will be the man directly responsible. He will report directly to me. And he will have the responsibility to take all of the government agencies, nine, that deal with the problems of rehabilitation, uh, in which his primary responsibilities will be, research and education, and see that they work not at cross-purposes, but work together in dealing with the problem. If we're going to have a successful offensive, we need more money. Consequently, I'm asking the Congress for $155 million in new funds, which will bring the total amount this year in the budget for drug abuse, both in enforcement and treatment, to over $350 million. As far as the new money is concerned, incidentally, I have made it clear to the leaders that if this is not enough, if more can be used, if Dr. Jaffe, Jaffe, after studying this problem, finds that we can use more, More will be provided. In order to defeat this enemy, which is causing such great concern, and correctly so to so many American families, money will be provided to the extent that it is necessary and to the extent that it will be useful. And finally, in order for this program to be effective, it is necessary uh, that it be conducted on a basis in which the American people all join in it. That's why the meeting was bipartisan. Bipartisan because we needed the support of the Congress, but bipartisan because we needed the leadership of members of the Congress in this field. Fundamentally, it is essential for the American people to be alerted to this danger, to recognize that it is a danger that will not pass with the passing of the war in Vietnam, which has brought to our attention the fact that a number of young Americans have become addicts as they serve abroad whether in Vietnam or Europe or other places because the problem existed before we became involved in Vietnam it will continue to exist afterwards and that is why this offensive deals with the problem there in Europe but will then go on to deal with the problem throughout America Uh, one final word with regard to presidential responsibility in this respect I very much hesitate always, to bring some new responsibility into the White House, because there are so many here, and I believe in delegating those responsibilities to the departments. But I consider this problem so urgent. I also found that it was scattered so much throughout the government, with so much conflict, without coordination, that it had to be brought into the White House, and consequently, I brought Dr. Jaffe into the White House, directly reporting to me, so that we have not only the responsibility but the authority to see that we wage this offensive effectively and in a coordinated way. Uh, the briefing team will now be ready to answer any questions on the technical details of the program.
6: Trap music. It. It. It's known for its heavy bass, aggressive drums, and, if you're listening hard enough, drugs. I'm in love with the go i be in
1: the kitchen cooking pies with my baby yeah.
6: But here's what's interesting. Even though the faces of trap music are mostly young black men, drug problems cross all color lines and all class boundaries. Now, if you picture a drug dealer in your mind, you're probably picturing some black kid standing street corner with his pants sagging. Plenty of drug dealing happens in the hood, but it happens everywhere else in America as well. So why do we so strongly associate drugs with urban communities? Turns out this is not entirely by accident.
4: America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse.
6: When a wave of heroin use and drug-related crime hit big cities in the 1970s, leaders were desperate for answers, and President Nixon declared a war on drugs initially focusing on it as a public health issue.
4: If we went after it as a health problem, I think in the long run we'd get both a reduction in crime and a a reduction in addiction rates.
6: Places like Baltimore had success helping users rehab with methadone clinics, but in places like New York, they caved to public fear and pressure and opted for policies of punishment.
3: We have more people incarcerated today in prison just for drug crimes than all of the people incarcerated in the year 1980.
6: But recently, a 1994 quote from an aide to President Nixon has surfaced claiming that the war on drugs had everything to do with race and politics. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies— the anti-war left, and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. Now, four decades later, the way we tell the story is starting to shift.
3: Even more surprising may be the face of the new addicts.
6: Heroin and opioid use is skyrocketing, killing off mostly young white Americans. And with that, there's a push to see drug abuse for the disease that it really is.
4: I went to a small private school and I used to be an all-star athlete.
6: Government officials are admitting that we have too many people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses.
4: It's not
7: normal.
6: And many leaders are declaring the so-called war on drugs, which has cost more than $1 trillion, a major failure. So now that we know better, we start supporting policies that help people cope with the root of addiction. and a cycle of selling, that's the real trap.
0: There's a lot in this um, in a program that you just listened to that I agree with. But you got to put some things in some context about... What John Ehrlichman has said. There's there's some controversy about the controversial quote that they they took there. It was made in 1994, full 20 years after Nixon had uh, had left office. And uh, Mister Ehrlichman, who went to prison because of Watergate, had some hard feelings toward President Nixon. Also, you'd seen how the war on drugs had played out at this point, and and so. Some people have said that, that Ehrlichman had a, a, a dry sense of humor and that that was a joke, and other people have said basically that it was some hard feelings airing out. But the truth is the facts don't match this, This to say that, that the war on drugs was aimed at hippies and black people. Um, I do agree, however, that the war on drugs uh, has been a failure, for one thing, and that it has disproportionately hurt the black community. Uh, I just don't think it was Richard Nixon who did it. And I don't think there's any question, uh, there's no question that he didn't aim anything at that. I wrote in my book about uh, President Nixon's drug program because the original war on drugs was actually a really good thing. During his administration, Richard Nixon was famous for his belief in law and order. But clearly he differentiated between the pitiful people addicted to drugs and those who sold it to them. He formed the Drug Enforcement Administration. He sent people into the District of Columbia's jail to figure out how to curtail crime and developed a methadone treatment plan to help the people who said they would, would not have committed crimes if not for the addiction to heroin in the first place, which was the announcement of his war on drugs was the first segment we listened to. Um, it wasn't until President Barack Obama was elected that the Nixon administration uh, was the only one that would focus on treatment and prevention. Uh, so Obama is the one who went back to Nixon policy. Watergate is what changed everything about the war on drugs. When Jimmy Carter became president, after the brief two-and-a-half-year period uh, with Gerald Ford's administration, he appointed a drug czar named Leo Dogeloff. And Mr. Dogoloff believed that drug addiction was a, was not a medical issue or a disease, but instead a social problem. Quote, drugs, all drugs are simply bad. The, there is no difference, Dogoloff insisted between soft drugs like marijuana and hard drugs like heroin and cocaine. So the penalties for dealing and possession should be the same. And that's from Walter Wink, who wrote that in the Christian Century. Then came President Ronald Reagan, who believed it was not the government's role to deal with drug treatment at all. He cut out all types of Nixon administration initiatives in that area, from methadone to treatment centers. And Reagan was a believer of attacking drugs at the source and put his efforts into uh, interdiction. Instead of addressing the demand side that we focused almost totally on, the supply side of the issue. That was where his focus was, because he believed that's what government's role was. Then President George H.W. Bush and his drug czar, William Bennett, began a crackdown on all offenders, dealers, and users alike. Quote, The logic was simple. If people insist on being bad, we will lock them up. The next administration... Bill Clinton's, a Democrat, embraced a three-strikes-and-you-are-out policy and our prisons swell with people who were in jail for drug offenses. And it had a devastating effect on the mentally ill who, instead of being in institutions, are now in prisons. And you just cannot ignore the lopsided devastation it had had on the African-American community. Quote, the typical user is a white male between 20 and 40 years old. Only 13% of those using illegal drugs are African-American exactly their proportion of the national population, but they constitute 35% of those arrested for drug possession and a staggering 74% of those sentenced for drug possession. That's a statistic that is simply indefensible. Quote from Walter Wink in his Christian um, Century article on on our drug addiction problem. One thing is clear treatment is seven times more cost-effective than, d- than domestic law enforcement, 10 times more effective than interdiction, and 23 times more effective than attacking drugs at the source. Again, as I said many times in our series, you can learn a lot from Richard Nixon. Quote from Walter Wink's article, Whatever his other faults, Nixon put the drug monies he got in all the right places. Treatment and methadone maintenance. We will not gain the upper hand in the war on drugs until we shift the focus of our efforts from the supply-side battle in distant distant corners of the world to a demand-side battle at home, President Richard Nixon wrote in his next-to-last book, Seize the Moment. Victory will only come if we reduce the demand for drugs through stronger legal actions, education, treatment, and most important, a radical change in community values. Richard Nixon did not aim anything at trying to hurt the black community. If anything, his biggest program, which is the one that Dr. Jaffe, who was in the, uh, the first segment on this, um, it was aimed at helping heroin addicts and curbing a crime problem in the District of Columbia, which at that time did not have a city government per se, but was run out of Congress. And, and Nixon had some control there. But it was a majority African-American community, so the drug addicts that he was helping were African-Americans. And this has been, I think, one of many injustices, that. and I keep going through this list because Richard Nixon tends to be that Republican that you can throw mud against and smear, and it kind of sticks to him because there's a lot of people out there who want it to stick to him. But this is a case that's totally unfair. Um, and President Nixon's was treatment-oriented um, and and about helping addicts, and no administration followed up on that until President Obama was elected in 2008. December was an extraordinarily busy month in 1971 because there were so many things happening with the Vietnam War, with the movement uh, towards the summit in China, and a war breaks out in probably still one of the most dangerous areas of the world, the Indian-Pakistani border. Looking at things on Wikipedia to kind of explain to you what, what had basically happened, the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971 was a military confrontation, confrontation between India and Pakistan that occurred during the Bangladesh Liberation War in East Pakistan. From December 3rd, 1971, to the fall of Dhaku in 16 of December 1971, the war began with Operation Genghis Khan's preemptive aerial strikes on 11 Indian air stations which led to the commencement of hostilities with Pakistan and India, India's entry into the war for independence in East Pakistan on the side of the Bengali Nationalist Forces. Now, this lasted about 13 days. It's one of the shortest wars in history, and in the process it also became part of a nine-month Bangladesh liberation war. During the war, Indian and, Indian and Pakistani military simultaneously clashed on the eastern and western fronts, and the war ended after the East Eastern Command of the Pakistani Army signed an instrument of surrender on the 16th of December of 1971, marking the formation of East Pakistan as the new nation of Bangladesh. Officially, East Pakistan had earlier called for its secession from Pakistan in March of 71. So this was a pretty tense situation uh, that broke out. And one of the side things that also occurred during all this is that an article got put into one of the newspapers Talking about the Nixon presidential uh, tilt to Pakistan instead of being loyal to India. Now India had gone off, and Indira Gandhi and, and got into an agreement with Russia. So the tensions already now between India and the president and President Nixon and the Nixon administration were there in the United States. But uh, you know th- this this article was leaked somehow. Um, to, to this reporter, and it could only have become from the military. For all the talk about President Nixon spying on people and breaking into buildings and, and the criminal activity, they're always bringing it up. On December 21st, 1971, Nixon was himself the victim of criminal behavior uh, from inside the military. Uh, professor Joan Hoff, who's a professor at Montana, Montana State University and the author of an excellent book on President Nixon called Nixon Reconsidered wrote an article for The Counterpunch, and it's about the Nixon story you've never heard. And it talks about how, over three decades ago, on December 21st, 1971, Richard Nixon approved the first major cover-up of his administration. He did so reluctantly at the behest of his closest political advisors, Attorney General John Mitchell, Domestic Counselor John Ehrlichman, and Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman. The public remains ignorant of this seminal event in Nixon's first term— and journalists and historians have largely, largely ignored it. This question is why. And I'm going to tell you, I tried to find material on it. It's called the, Thomas, the Moore-Radford Affair. And what Nixon agreed to was to cover up criminally insubordinate spying operation conducted by the Joint Chiefs of Staff inside the National Security Council because of the military's strong, visceral dislike of Nixon's foreign policy. In particular, the Joint Chiefs thought Nixon had gone soft on communism by reaching out to the Chinese and the Russians, and they resented Vietnamization as a way to end the war. As early as 1976, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt publicly made these military suspicions and resentments abundantly clear in his book On Watch, a memoir. Quote, I had first become concerned many months before the June 1972 burglary. About the deliberate, systematic, and unfortunately extremely successful efforts of the president, Henry Kissinger, and a few subordinate members of their inner circle to conceal, sometimes by simple silence, more often by articulate deceit, their real policies about the most critical matters of national security. In a word, Zoomwalt, like many within the American military elite, thought that Nixon's foreign policies bordered on the traitorous. This article goes on to say, In this atmosphere of extreme distrust, it led Admiral Thomas Moore, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to first authorize Rear Admiral Rembrandt C. Robinson and later Rear Admiral Robert O. Willander, both liaisons between the Joint Chiefs and the White House's National Security Council, to start spying on the NSC. For 13 months, from late 1970 to late 1971, Navy Yeoman Charles E. Radford, an aide to both Robinson and Willander, systematically stole and copied NSC documents from burn bags containing carbon copies from briefcases and the desks of Henry Kissinger, Alexander Haig, and their staff, and he then, he then turned them over to his superiors. The White House became suspicious when Jack Anderson, and this is the article I was talking about earlier, published a column on December 14th entitled U.S. Tilts to Pakistan. Such information logically could only have come from meetings of the Washington Special Action Group on December 3rd and the 4th, which discussed the fact that Pakistan was being used as a conduit for the top-secret negotiations the Nixon administration was carrying on with China, negotiations that would culminate in the reapproachment with the communist nation in the spring of the next year. Clearly, someone had leaked the minutes of the WSAG meeting to Anderson, and the suspicion fell on the military. This should have been a huge Huge scandal. And it speaks to something that every president needs to worry about, and that is the folks around him. The White House is a bubble, and there is a lot of staff and a lot of interwork things going on there. And one of the reasons that President Nixon was so clearly uh, secretive about his reach out to China, his reaching out with the Russians, how he was uh, getting us slowly out of Vietnam. Was to prevent this kind of leaking that uh, that it was a problem, and frankly, this yeoman and these three these admirals should have gone to jail for this. And and because Nixon didn't want to alienate the military, he didn't do anything about it. But this is part of the atmosphere that is going to lead to the third segment in our season, which will be on Watergate. You had people there spying on the president and him trying to get us out of a war that it would eventually kill 54,000 Americans. It's all this tension is building in December of 1971 when this war breaks out between India and Pakistan.
5: India and the Soviet Union signed the Treaty of Peace, Friendship, and Cooperation, which specifies mutual strategic cooperation. This is a key development and Prime Minister Indira Gandhi's masterstroke. Prime Minister Indira Gandhi goes on a world tour, visiting heads of state of foreign countries to explain the situation and garner support. This was essential as favourable international opinion was an important prerequisite for the successful pursuit of the mission to liberate Bangladesh from the Pakistani yoke. Indira Gandhi's visit to President Nixon was strained and the tension between the two leaders was palpable. Prime Minister Gandhi, referring to the refugee crisis the president for ignoring a man-made tragedy of vast proportions.
4: We are not bound together by a treaty commitment in the technical sense. But India and the United States are bound together by a higher morality, a more profound morality that does not need a legal document to make it live. I speak of the common devotion that the people of India and the people of the United States have to the cause of freedom, to the cause of representative government, to the right of every country in this world to be independent of foreign domination, and to the cause of peace.
7: It has not been easy to get away at a time when India is beleaguered. To the natural calamities of drought, flood, and cyclones has been added a man-made tragedy of vast proportions. I am haunted by the tormented faces in our overcrowded refugee camps, reflecting the grim events which have compelled the exodus of these millions from East Bengal. I have come here looking for a deeper understanding of the situation in our part of the world in search of some wise impulse which, as history tells us, has sometimes worked to save humanity from despair. I look forward to our discussions. I have no doubt that they will lead to the strengthening of friendship and understanding between our two nations and to a lightening of our path. As we work together for peace in Asia and the
5: world. Hello, Dr. Kissinger, sir. Hmm. Hello. Uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Bell. Uh, did you survive it? Oh, yes. <laughs> Where are you? The big house? I'm in. Uh, no, I'm in one of the villas at the. Uh... Well, that'll be better. You can get more service there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, your children with you? they with me and they love it. They've never been here. Tell
4: me this. Is, uh, uh, it's raining down there, though, isn't it? No. What stopped? No, it's perfect
5: weather. It's a little windy.
4: They stopped. It, it rained yesterday because I called Edgar Hoover down there and it was raining. Yes, but it stopped raining yesterday
5: afternoon, I'm told. It's
4: perfect weather.
5: Yeah. It's yeah. a little windy, but it's dying down by the hour.
4: Well, you tell your kids to walk to the lighthouse, will you? Well, I think that's what they're planning to do. Well, they tell them that I always did that when I stayed at the Key Biscayne. You know, they won't be bothered, and they can just. It's a mile and a half walk. It's the best walk in the world, and they can, you know, pick up uh, shells. It's a great fun. It's beautiful. And they can do anything they want, and if they uh, if it's if the swimming is bad there, they can go over the other side. Well,
5: uh, they got they, the strike off last night, Mr.
4: President. Oh, they did. I, that's why I was calling to see what any developments, what the, yes. what what, the, what kind of a one they get off.
5: Uh, they had good weather, and they cut everything into the air. I haven't got the bomb damage assessment yet because they just stopped flying two hours ago.
4: Yeah. Well, at least uh, that's one day of it, huh?
5: That's right. if they think they can get at least 48 hours and maybe as high as 7 to 2.
4: Uh-huh. Well, I think it's a good time to do it, don't you? have
5: yeah, to do it, Mr. President.
4: But the other side, uh, Violet, is
5: in the plane they are, they
4: are uh, stepping up the infiltration. Right. Um, well, they're, I think they're really, your analysis may be correct. Who knows? They may be getting, trying to get to a bargaining position. Well, Mr.
5: President, they're seeing Bob Hope, for example. You know, it's a cheap floyd. But it's what they usually do. Yeah. That's right. And uh, I don't think they'll let it get to the election without a negotiation. Uh, we're going to... Uh,
4: going to be awful hard to negotiate with, though, at this point. There's no reason to just go through that business of Paris again. Just I think, Mr. President, as, I, as we discussed a
5: few weeks ago, yeah. uh, towards the end of January, uh, you might not go public with your October plan and put it before that, if it were a new plan. Yeah. Say a little bit about what's gone before. I wouldn't give a long story. No. Nope, nope, I do I don't think people are really interested
4: in a... No, they aren't interested in who did what to whom. They're only interested in, well, you remember, like our, now is the time to have the benefit of what we did in October of 69, just, 70. Uh, just put out a, a new peace plan, and then it'll get a big play, and then it'll they, they'll not answer it, and that's that. That's right, but
5: it'll get us uh, a month or two.
4: That's right. We
5: can say a little bit about what went on during the
4: summer session. Yeah, I, I, I would simply, without going into details, I would simply say we have had, we have been we have had 10 or 15 private meetings on this and that, and have presented this all to them, and was, this is our offer.
5: And it's a lie that they've been yeah. answered the seven points. We've been right. negotiating it. That's correct. But uh, this is what we now put before them, grows out of right. our private and public meetings.
4: This uh, this uh, strike will probably not be played then in the papers until tomorrow.
5: Well, not until. No, actually, but the papers, the way they run, not
4: until tomorrow. That's right. That's fine. That's good. Oh, that's good, and it'll. Uh, but it'll. Uh, this is the one that hits mainly in the Magia Pass area and that sort of well, place. It hits
5: the pass area, you know. It hits all the storage areas along the coast too, and we're going to wind up with
4: hitting Vin. Yeah. We're going to take out all the airfields. Well, the, the purpose for getting the. We figure you can get some planes on the. Uh, knock out some planes, as I understand. Right. And also the way
5: they ship this stuff is to send it down by boat to Vin and Tong Hoi. And then they put it on trucks, and they're hitting
4: both of these transshipments for it. Yeah. And the major point is just to show them that they're still a Stingler. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, nothing else in the world. I, I noticed that, uh, you know, our Indian friends are having trouble, aren't they? They're now they're now admitting that, they're, or that they've got to stay in in uh, Bangladesh for for a few months, right? Oh, I think, and then, and then also telling Bhutto that he can't claim it's part of Pakistan. Well, my God, I'd think Bhutto would scream from the house tops about that, wouldn't you? That Bhutto can't do what? So that Buto, cannot. Uh, now that you know, you know, Buto has released Mujib and so forth. That he cannot claim that this is part of Pakistan anymore.
5: Oh yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. In other words, he's really uh, Bhutto just ought to raise hell. I mean, should they? Is it part of India? We will
5: look. Uh... Uh, on this one, first of all, no one likes the Indians, and secondly, I think they're going to look worse and worse as time goes on.
4: Well, don't you think a little of the fact that they've been terribly uh, cruel and uh, and deceitful is beginning to get through?
5: I have no doubt about it. Uh, yeah. Nelson called me yesterday. And we did. We mm-hmm. sad about Christmas, and he said he thought that the. Uh, India's situation is working in our favor, basically. With the public.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, the main thing, though, Henry. Look, look at what they're doing. They're doing exactly what uh, I certainly expected. They're they're occupying East Pakistan, and they're and I don't think they're ever going to get out. Do you?
5: Occupying East Pakistan, there are more verified cases of atrocities under their rule yeah. than they were under the Pakistan rule. There were never any pictures. Of and them.
4: now they had, to, and you know, now another lie comes out. They had to back down the charge that the Pakistan Army had slaughtered those intellectuals, it turns out to have been some religious sect. you notice that? Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, fine. I hope you feel better and uh, right, just take, take it easy and look out the window. Thank you. Mr. Okay.
5: Thank bye. You bye. <laughs> Hello.
7: Mr. Chancellor, Mr. President.
4: Hello. Mr. President. I have two purposes for my call. First, to wish you a very Merry Christmas, and second, to thank you for the very fine job that you and your staff did on the uh day in the life of the president we're very kind to call and i hope you survived it
8: <laughs> yes we did yeah I'm sorry it couldn't have been longer i wanted it to be an hour and a half but we yeah. didn't clear the time
4: oh of course well uh, i think probably leaving the audience uh, wanting a little more is uh, fine and of course the uh uh, when uh, when some say, well, why couldn't we have seen in depth more things? You got a lot more film, but you can't put it all on. But I, I think you gave a feel of it, such as uh, perhaps nobody's ever had before of a day, and uh, it was, uh, and that that came through, and that was what a great number of calls we got here on it.
8: Well, I and, just thought it was a magnificent opportunity to see the yeah. president in operation, and we were we were immensely grateful to have had the chance to. Yeah.
4: Well, we enjoyed it. Sorry we couldn't uh, couldn't have uh, done a little more, but uh, I, I think we gave you enough on the plate for one year, time. You certainly Ma- did. Maybe, maybe in a year or two we'll try it again. let <laughs> Let's see
8: what it's like in the second term,
4: sir. Yeah, maybe, maybe we get, perhaps we get the damn war over with and a few other things we'll have more pleasant things to talk about.
5: Well,
8: but you
4: know, one good thing about it is, uh, that it occurred to me is that, uh, that, uh, the, uh, it's, it's it was very timely with regard India-Pakistan because apparently in my talk with you so late at night, remember I said that yeah. if that that, if that thing could be over by the time this program was on, and, and by golly it is, yes, that's it's, right. it's, it's, it's not a happy ending in any event, but uh, there's no way that part of the world will ever be happy, I'm afraid.
8: No, and you said that. Yeah. And, I thought you said that very well. Yeah. That, uh,
4: you've been down. Before. You've been down there before, haven't you? Oh, I have yeah. indeed. And you know that the the hatreds that are there, they're only the only place they're equaled is in the Middle East. That's the only place they're equaled. I mean, I think the religious and other hatreds in the Middle East uh, are make that problem virtually insoluble. And the same is true of India-Pakistan. And it's just one of those. And when you get the great powers involved, particularly in India-Pakistan, India, and China, and then in the East, the Soviet Union, the U.S., it's a real tough titty.
8: Well, you know, we had lunch with Golda Meir in New York after you had seen her. Oh, yeah. And the very first thing she said to me was, she said, I'm going to take my view of the U.N. from Indira Gandhi from now on. Ooh. And uh, that's not good. And we said that. And she said, I, I hope
4: know. you did. I hope you told her that. You see, the difficulty is that, just uh, <laughs> for your private information, I want to go, don't quote me on this, but uh, you realize that uh, uh, the women's lives And maybe sometime uh, when you're doing a little commentary or uh, you don't want to hear editorial, you might sort of in a a nice way handle this. Women's lip contends that if only we had women in positions of power, we'd have no war. Uh You look at the history of nations, and when you have had women in positions of power, women are really tougher than men. Very curious, isn't it? But you you look back. uh, Now, in this instance, when you look around the world, the two basically strongest in terms of uh, willingness to take risks in you know, the world, are happened to be two women. That's right. It's curious, isn't it? And we Indra, Indra Gandhi. You know, has this uh, this great uh, background and the rest, and she's an enormously able woman. I have great respect for what she is. She's tough. Very. Tough. She's tough.
8: Well, even Mrs. Bandaranaike in Ceylon.
4: Oh yes, I, she's she's no uh, another. She's uh, she's very strong.
8: Well, I would just hope that Fidel Castro would not be succeeded by a woman.
4: Oh boy, a Cuban woman! Wouldn't that be something?
8: That'd give us a lot of trouble.
4: Yeah, we got enough trouble with him. <laughs> it's awfully kind of you. To well, say. anyway, give, I know that so many members of the crew and the rest I couldn't speak to, but I do know what a what a misery it is to produce such a thing. But they did a fine job, and I uh, I appreciated it very much. Well, I'm terribly good okay. All right, goodbye. Thank you.
9: On December 23rd, in the East Room of the White House, describing it as a Christmas gift to the American people, President Nixon signed the National Cancer Act of 1971. We
4: are here today for the purpose of signing the Cancer Act of 1971. And I hope that in the years ahead, that we may look back on this day and this action as being the most significant action taken during this administration.
9: Presidential involvement with cancer research had begun when President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the National Cancer Act of 1937. In 1940, FDR drove to Bethesda, Maryland, to dedicate the National Institutes of Health, including, for the first time, a National Cancer Institute.
4: Among the buildings of the National Institute of Health to be dedicated here today stands the National Cancer
9: Institute
4: created through provisions of the act which I signed on August 5th, 1937.
9: Since its founding in 1913, the American Society for the Control of Cancer had tried to raise awareness of a disease so steeped in fear and stigma that it was rarely even named, much less spoken about in public. In 1938, philanthropists and activists Albert and Mary Lasker and their friend, pharmaceutical executive Elmer Bopst took over the American Society for the Control of Cancer and rebranded it into the proactive American Cancer Society. Mary Lasker was a Democrat. She had been instrumental in President Johnson's funding of research and community health programs for heart disease, stroke, and cancer. Elmer Bopst was a Republican who had become one of the Nixon family's closest personal friends. Both Mary Lasker and Elmer Bopst would play vital parts in the National Cancer Act of 1971. When Richard Nixon became president in 1969, he had great hopes and plans for reforming the American healthcare system to assure that no American family would be prevented from obtaining basic medical care because they couldn't afford it. He had an early personal interest in cancer. His aunt, Elizabeth Milhouse Harrison, died of breast cancer when she was 38 and he was 17. Pat Nixon was 12 when her mother died of Bright's disease and a fast-acting liver cancer in 1924. As one of their earliest White House events, the new president and first lady welcomed American Cancer Society president Dr. Sidney Farber and cancer survivor and talk show host Virginia Graham to launch the society's 1969 crusade. A number of advances in research and treatment encouraged the idea that major cancer breakthroughs were possible, and in December, Mary Lasker sponsored striking full-page ads in the New York Times, Washington Post, and other national papers. After a year of planning, in his January 1971 State of the Union address, the president made a bold challenge and a firm commitment.
4: I will also ask for an appropriation of an extra $100 million to launch an intensive campaign to find a cure for cancer. And I will ask later for whatever additional funds can effectively be used. The time has come. In America, when the same kind of concentrated effort that split the atom and took man to the moon, should be turned toward conquering this dread disease.
9: A month later, he met with his science advisor, Dr. Edward David, and his science advisory committee. He made it clear that he saw a cure for cancer as an inspirational goal that would capture public attention. While the real work would be done by supporting research. As far as what countries are I needs, mean, the symbolism of the goal, I mean, so it was with the clothing that uh, they you know,
4: had in this field. Uh, I think we we'll have to look at them two ways. One, which is, of course, buying a cure for cancer. And second, in the broader, of attracting public attention and developing public support for
9: major uh, efforts in medical research and
4: support those efforts in a very
9: substantial way. A few months later, he met with Dr. Charles Hoffman, president of the American Medical Association. Dr. Hoffman's granddaughter reads his account of that meeting.
5: President Nixon asked him,
6: Dr what do you consider the most pressing problem that medicine has today?
4: My grandfather later wrote, my answer was simple, cancer. The president said, I'm amazed. Why do you think that? And my grandfather replied, I think that every physician who is dedicated and sincere never goes on the floor of a hospital
6: where he has cancer patients without feeling helpless.
4: We always come away with the feeling, there's so little we
9: can do. Some notes the president made at this time, July 1971, show his thinking and his determination to be directly involved. We have made great progress in research. The time has come for a consolidated, massive effort to find a cure for cancer. I've asked for $100 million in additional funds. I have set up a new independent agency reporting directly to the president. In October, President Nixon announced that Fort Dietrich in Frederick, Maryland, would be converted from a biological warfare facility to a cancer research center. The White House domestic council staffer working on the cancer initiative was Jim Cavanaugh. Today, Dr. Cavanaugh is chairman of the Nixon Foundation's board of directors.
10: In early 1971, After consultation with experts inside and outside the government, the president had decided that he would seek an additional $100 million for cancer research. He announced that decision in the State of the Union message that year, and the next day legislation was sent to the Congress to enact the president's program. Hearings were held in both the House and the Senate. It was a tight year for money that year, and in addition, both Houses, the Senate and the House, were in control of the party opposite from the President's. But he was persistent, and both Houses had hearings. It passed bills, the House bill much more in conformance to the President's program than the Senate. The President communicated to the Senate that there were provisions in their bill that he could accept, that there were provisions in their bill that he could not accept, but he offered modifications to make them acceptable. The House and Senate conferees went back to work uh, to modify the bill, passed it in both houses, sent it to the president for his review in late November of 1971. And then on December 23rd at the White House, a uh, ceremony attended by leaders from the House and Senate, various national organizations, the American Cancer Society, university uh, experts in the field of cancer and others, the president uh, signed the National Cancer Act of 1971.
9: Both houses of Congress had Democratic majorities, and the White House Congressional Relations staff worked tirelessly with leaders like Representatives Paul Rogers and Anchor Nelson and Senators Ralph Yarbrough, Edward Kennedy, and Jacob Javits.
10: The passage of the National Cancer Act of 1971 could serve today as a model of bipartisanship. But that's not to say there were not significant differences, not only between Republicans and Democrats, but between the House and the Senate. President Nixon's leadership was crucial in resolving not only these issues, but in stressing the importance of the National Cancer Act, which over 50 years has fostered a revolution in biology and is one of the most transformational pieces of legislation of the 20th century.
9: On December 23rd, when the president signed the National Cancer Act of 1971, he invited the large bipartisan congressional delegation to join him for an historic photograph.
4: This is an indication of the priorities. You know the Congress had a very long session and uh, finally got adjourned. Uh, We all appreciated that fact, incidentally. Uh, but once they adjourned uh, (laughs) they did too Uh, once they adjourned and they were to go home and go on their vacations to have this many members of the House and Senate uh, who are members of the committee back here shows how deeply they feel and I think that uh, for that reason we'd like to record this for a picture so go ahead we don't have to tell House and Senate members how
9: to get in the picture (laughs) (laughs) Although the phrase war on cancer was widely used, President Nixon himself purposely never wrote or spoke those words. We would not want to raise false hopes by simply the signing of an act.
4: But we can say this, that for those who have cancer and who are looking for success in this field, they at least can have the assurance Everything that can be done by government, everything that can be done by voluntary agencies in this great, powerful, rich country now will be done. And that will give some hope, and we hope those hopes will not be disappointed. In
9: 1973, he requested a further $100 million, and in 1974, $100 million more. During his administration, more than $1.5 billion went to cancer research, helping to hasten the advances in molecular biology and immunotherapy in so many other areas.
1: Every day I see how research has
4: changed and is constantly changing the treatments and the lives of young patients,
1: which include the children that I work with in radiation proton therapy at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. With each research advancement, it brings new hope and comfort to patients and families. It makes me proud and inspires me to think about the difference that my grandfather has made and about the living legacy he created
6: 50 years ago on that December afternoon when he signed the National
7: Cancer Act of 1971.
9: The National Cancer Act of 1971 established the independence of the National Cancer Institute and the tradition of direct presidential involvement. It focused a national conversation on cancer prevention. It created the National Clinical Trials Network. It created 15 designated cancer centers. Today, there are 71 nationwide, and that number continues to grow. In NCI's words, the National Cancer Act of 1971 gave our country an holistic approach to addressing cancer and its many challenges. This broad legislation gave new authority to the National Cancer Institute and established some of the programs that formed the backbone of today's cancer research enterprise. Most importantly, as a result of the National Cancer Act of 1971, lives were saved, lives were prolonged, pain and suffering were alleviated, and suddenly there was hope, where there had been no hope before.
4: How would you like to be remembered? I suppose everyone would like to be remembered, particularly for his major achievements. Uh, But as I look back during the White House years, I think, for example, of of an initiative which many people have forgotten, the cancer initiative. You remember, we started that in 1971, and it was brought home to me just a couple of days ago. My brother, Don, has cancer. It's a very serious case. Uh, He's now taking radiation and chemotherapy. Ten years ago, his doctor told him he would be dead. So that initiative may have helped uh, prolong his life and the life of other cancer patients. Uh, What I'm suggesting here is that we all think of, well, he went to China. Uh, He ended the war in Vietnam. Uh, He opened relations with the Soviet Union through detente. But in my view, if the cancer initiative, which we began, could save lives, that would be worth all the rest put together.